Hi guys, welcome to the Revive Stronger podcast. I am your host as always, Steve Hall, and today I'm joined by Dr. Cody Horn, who I'm very excited to chat to. Uh, just to give a brief intro about Cody, if you haven't heard about him, he started a kind of his fitness industry kind of journey as a very successful personal trainer. Uh, but he desired further knowledge and that eventually led to a PhD in exercise physiology. He is also now kind of I don't know if prolific is the right word, but he is certainly a researcher and has done a lot of research in the area of hypertrophy and a lot of the things that we're going to be talking about today. Um, and the thing that I really liked about Cody and his message that I kind of picked up over on his website was that he kind of wants to just bridge the gap between scientific research and practical application to get the most efficient results. And as someone who is kind of gone down the route of a personal trainer and then kind of find the science and kind of the whole that I never took it I haven't taken it to a PhD level but that kind of journey really spoke out to me and I think it will speak out to a lot of the listeners so Cody is there anything else you kind of want to let the listeners know about anything more about yourself no that that was really good man uh, I appreciate the the flattering intro Awesome. So first of all, what something we're going to touch on is it's already a paper that we touched on with Brandon Roberts. So you guys can for sure go back and check out that episode as well if you want to kind of delve into kind of some real specific details. Uh, but just for some kind of surface level, um, that was kind of research that was talking about sarcoplasmic and myofibrillar hypertrophy and that they probably do occur. Um, and I don't know if, Cody, you want to kind of first introduce kind of basics, what those two are, the differences between them. And then we can dive into if there's any ways that we can practically structure our training, or at least from your kind of perspective, how you might want to structure training to maximize either or one of those. And then we can talk about hypertrophy in general. Yeah. So I've talked a good bit about this in the most recent months. Um, so to simplify the idea of hypertrophy, we offered some definitions uh, that are beyond just the idea of increasing the muscle size based on a review article that we wrote and then the analysis that uh, I performed in my dissertation samples. Um, so just briefly, if we characterize hypertrophy as an increase in muscle size that doesn't clearly describe what caused the increase in muscle size and as part of my dissertation literature review and this is going back to uh, conversations that i had with uh, dr mike stone at uh, etsu who was my one of my professors uh, during my master's degree and um, Essentially, the literature, when you trace it back to like the late 1800s um, in some animal work and then through the, the 1900s, the process of muscle hypertrophy and what actually causes the muscle cells to grow in response to training isn't as clear as a lot of people would characterize it. Um, so basically, <laughs> The primary structures in a muscle cell, um, if, we, if we dehydrate the muscle, so muscle as a tissue is about 70% water. Um, but from a, a structure standpoint or a composition standpoint, or even just thinking of it as a, sort of an organeller standpoint, you have the mitochondria, uh, the powerhouses of the cell, the myofibrils, which are these thread-like structures that uh, run throughout a muscle fiber that uh, consist of the sarcomeres, which is where the contractile proteins are. And those are uh, what actually shorten to generate contraction. Um, and then the sarcoplasmic reticulum and the T-tubules. And the T-tubules um, connect largely with the membrane of the muscle. So this lipid bilayer that uh, houses the uh, intracellular components. So to quickly summarize, you have the mitochondria, the myofibrils, and the SR and the T-tubules make up most of the um, structural composition of a muscle cell. And there are other things, the proteins in the sarcoplasm or the fluid portion of the cell. So if we add the fluid back in, 
Well, in that fluid medium, there are a lot of metabolic enzymes and uh, other cell organelles like ribosomes and lysosomes, etc. But in that fluid portion of cell, imagine all of these things suspended, right? So other research before my dissertation, before the analysis that we performed, uh, suggested that it was possible that as a muscle cell grew in response to training, that the growth wasn't primarily driven by an expansion of those myofibrils, those structures that contain the sarcomeres and the contractile proteins. Uh, and that is to say that it's, it was possible, based on these previous studies, that a muscle fiber could grow in response to training via increasing structures and other compositional uh, components uh, than the, the myofibrils themselves. So perhaps, for example, the T-tubules and the SR and the membrane uh, could expand and cause an observed increase in muscle fiber size. And perhaps the myofibril concentration remains the same. Uh, or it's possible that mitochondrial volume could increase uh, and cause an expansion of the, the size of the cell, whereas most of the other uh, structures and the organelle concentrations were held relatively constant. So and I guess an even more simple way to think of it is if a muscle cell grows, we can think of it as uh, myofibrillar hypertrophy. So an increase in size due to an increased number or size of those myofibrils, or simply an increase in muscle size due to factors other than the myofibrils. So sort of myofibrillar hypertrophy and all the different other types of hypertrophy. Now, mm -hmm. we referred to it as sarcoplasmic hypertrophy because that term had been coined previously. Um, and the sarcoplasm contains a, a lot of those other structures and the organelles and enzymes, et cetera. So we, we termed it sarcoplasmic hypertrophy. I'm sure as the research goes on, we'll have better definitions and, and more well-developed thoughts. Uh, but do you want me to talk about what we found in the specific study? Was that a, a fair overview? Is there any clarification needed? No, absolutely. I think uh, a lot of people have probably heard about them both and having the idea of kind of the myofibrils, myofibrillar hypertrophy is the one that a lot of people thought that, well, there was a time a lot of scientists even thought that was the only hypertrophy going on where you're getting more of those. But now kind of obviously your research has really expanded upon that and shown that there is another kind of type, I guess, of hypertrophy going on. So no, fantastic. And yeah, absolutely continue. So yeah, well, and to your point, if you look at several papers and even review articles on hypertrophy, it was a theme um, in the late 1900s uh, and, and even more recently in the 2000s, even as recent as a few years ago. Um, I mean, well-cited research papers. Uh, and it was like this dogmatic assumption that um, muscle hypertrophy or true hypertrophy is an increase in muscle size due to an increase in myofibrillar protein content. Um, and that was, those were conflated, right? If the muscle cell grows, it's due to an expansion of the number or the size of the myofibrils in it. Um, and it's just not that simple. Um, now to be clear, I didn't expect to find what we did in my study, so I can talk about what we actually found. Frankly, I, I thought that we would find that contractile protein content uh, increased, or at least the concentration would remain the same of those contractile proteins, particularly myosin and actin. I expected that we would find in response to the six-week training study that we did with very high volumes, that we would see either a maintenance of or potentially an increase in contractile protein content. But that's not what we found. In fact, we found that in response to this six-week training intervention, uh, in the subjects that demonstrated increases in muscle fiber size, so once we extracted the muscle sample at baseline, at the midpoint, 
uh, after the six weeks. And then uh, some of them even donated a biopsy sample a week later after detraining, so no training. And I expected, well, and just briefly, you take the muscle cell and you can mount it on a microscope slide and you can measure the size of the muscle fibers using um, various uh, antibodies and a microscope that emits a certain frequency of light. You take pictures of it and then you can measure the size. Uh, and we did a lot of other assays to measure protein concentration or at least proxies of, of protein concentration. I expected that as the muscle cells grew uh, in this subset of participants, there were around 15, that we would find uh, contractile protein content or concentration remained of the same or increased. So the growth in the cell involved uh, a proportional increase or maintenance of contractile proteins. That's what I thought would happen. And we found that uh, myosin and actin content uh, seemed to actually decrease on average. Um, and, and it was uh, based on the statistical technique that's used. Um, more research is going to be required to you know, clarify this, if this is a real phenomenon uh, due to other training interventions. But based on the statistics that we performed and the analysis that we did, uh, it looked like myosin and actin protein content decreased. Um, and sarcoplasmic protein concentration, so in that fluid portion of the cell, uh, basically protein content other than in the myofibrils themselves, that seemed to increase. Uh, and the increase was maintained largely after a week of detraining. So after the subjects detrained for a week, it, it, in other words, it wasn't, it didn't, it didn't seem to be temporary. It didn't seem to be a transient response. It, it lasted uh, for at least a, a week. Those proteins were still measurable. So, and what were those proteins? Well, we also followed that um, assay up with proteomics and found that, and that's basically just an investigation of the specific proteins that were expressed. Um, and we found that a lot of them were um, glycolytic enzymes um, and enzymes involved in the formation of ATP. Um, so we also found an increase, and I'm, I'm recalling this, uh, I think an increase in lactate dehydrogenase from pre to post. Um, so essentially more metabolic related uh, mm. enzymes. And so, yeah, man, I mean, that's, that was sort of the overview of the study. Uh, I can elaborate or do you have any questions? I guess uh, the kind of the practical side of this kind of what can we maybe draw from the study as trainees to kind of go about maximizing hypertrophy and now knowing that there isn't just myofibrillar there's also sarcoplasmic and did your study kind of reveal any potential avenues to kind of allowing that kind of to be maximized do you think yeah, that's a good question. So basically the practical implications, and like you mentioned in the intro, and I appreciate that, I'm, I'm very passionate about trying to take this basic science, this mechanistic science, and bridge it to application. So what are the practical applications? Well, I don't think that I can give super specific uh, advice, but I will say that we need to do more work. We need to do more research. We need to really understand dose-response effects. Um, with different types of training and the uh, protein level responses short term but uh, and long term I mean there, dude, there's just there, there are hardly any studies beyond like 20 weeks uh, so we, we need to do more work to to understand what happens long term but the specific training design that we used um, it would involved relatively light loads so 60% one rep max um, and we started at about 10 sets per muscle per week. Uh, and then we increased the dose up to like 32 sets um, of 10 per week. The rep in reserve rating on average was around three or four. Um, and so it wasn't a super, uh, the training program didn't involve really heavy loads on a regular basis, but relatively heavy and definitely high volume. Um, I mean, you've probably done... 30 or so sets of 10 at around 60% in a week. It's not exactly easy. Um, have you ever, have you ever took set volume to, to that level? 
maybe for 30 sets i'm trying to think for for a single muscle group i'm not sure if i've quite got to 30 maybe for something like delts potentially up to that um but close for sure like back is certainly breached 20 sets yeah it's not easy right so it was a very high volume routine and therefore the metabolic demands of the program you know to revisit a, a principle of training specificity right there are specific adaptations to impose demands it makes sense that due to the turnover of atp you know the energy currency of the cell the reduction in substrates used to manufacture that atp handling free radicals and metabolites that are generated from all of that metabolism it makes sense that the muscle cells would would respond by increasing enzyme metabolic enzyme content to more effectively form atp um, and I, I personally think that a lot of the growth was due to an expansion in the sarcoplasmic reticulum and the T-tubules. Um, so calcium handling, uh, you know, when uh, the action potential, I don't know what this is, like a claw, but <laughs> the action potential uh, rives at the muscle and acetylcholine binds to receptors. Eventually calcium is rele uh, released and then uh, muscle contraction can occur, right? Just to simplify the process. That's an important process is secreting and uh, taking ca uh, calcium back up into the, the sarcoplasmic reticulum. So I think that because mitochondrial volume seemed to go down uh, in the samples that we analyzed and myofibrillar volume or seemed decreased, that since the SR and the T-tubules make up a lot of the rest of the, the cell, um, I think that those expanded, the, the volume of the sarcoplasmic reticulum and T-tubules actually expanded. With that said, the adaptations to this style of training seem to be related to things like metabolism and um, calcium handling. Now, that's one interpretation. I also think that considering that these enzymes were expressed and that they're involved in ATP formation, that this adaptation probably occurs in response to several different types of training in the initial weeks that you actually begin a certain training block or type of training. So I think that this is probably a, a characteristic adaptation that occurs when you begin a new training program. Right. And essentially, this sets the metabolic stage in a way. It prepares the muscle cell to expand the myofibrillar fraction. Um, growing myofibrils and generating entire new myofibrils, um, those, those thread-like structures that actually contain the sarcomeres, is an energetically costly process. It's very energy uh, demanding. It costs a lot of ATP um, to construct those structures. So it makes sense that the cell would upregulate these metabolic factors and its ability to manufacture ATP to support that eventual structural growth of those myofibrils. So had we kept going, uh, had we you know, deloaded perhaps for a week and then uh, continued to train in a similar way and tracked protein expression, I think we would have eventually seen uh, an increase in contractile protein content. So, okay, what does that mean? Back to your question. What are the practical implications? Well, I, it doesn't seem that you can specifically, as best we know right now, I can't give people, like this is how to target sarcoplasmic expansion and this is how to target myofibrillar expansion, unfortunately. But we are doing uh, more research. My friend Chris Van, uh, he just finished his dissertation data collection and it was a really nice, uh, well-designed study, in my opinion. And I helped collect the, the pre and, and uh, post data for that. But basically, we're looking at um, the effect uh, within subject using higher volume or a higher intensity routine. And we're going to analyze the biopsy samples to see if intensity or volume, if there are basically uh, characteristic or unique effects, right, that are... Um, unique to a certain style of training. And the idea is just revisiting Mel Sif and uh, several other uh, scientists in the, the early 1900s. Maybe um, higher intensity training results in 
an increased expression of myofibrillar proteins. So when the contractile demands, the actual force demands of training are very high on a consistent basis, maybe the myofibrils grow in a disproportionate manner or that biases the growth more toward myofibrillar hypertrophy, whereas higher volume routines, uh, perhaps with relatively lower loads, bias the uh, adaptation more to the sarcoplasm and some of the other structures in the cell. And I will say uh, a recent study came out using uh, relatively lighter loads for higher volumes and they trained to failure. And this is at a Stu Phillips lab and it looked like the mitochondrial protein there was a unique response in the mitochondrial fraction of the cell that mitochondrial protein expression seemed to go up certain proteins that are present in the mitochondria. Um, and that seemed to be different between the loads that were compared low load versus high load. So with all that said, I do think that there are specific protein level responses uh, to a certain style of training. Um, but we just don't know yet the specific uh, adaptations to specific percentages of one rep max on average and specific set volumes in various muscles. You know, and then, man, there's a whole other layer to this. You start thinking about the different muscles of the body um, and then between individuals, uh, you know, muscle architecture, insertion points, um, you know, all these different th things start to add layers of complexity. But that's sort of my perspective. I can elaborate or if you want to clarify something. It was something that just came into my head was um, obviously the discussion that you're kind of thinking might be the case is kind of the sarcoplasmic hypertrophy is maybe more emphasized when we're doing higher volume and then the myofibrillars maybe when it's like lower volume, more intensity. And that sounds a little bit similar to some hypothesis towards like slow twitch and fast twitch muscle fibers in that kind of the higher volume and kind of lower intensities and maybe preferentially hypertrophying slow twitch fibers versus higher intensities, preferentially hypertrophying fast twitch fibers. I don't know if there's any links there. And when I've said that, that kind of makes anything, if, if you'd ever thought of anything relating to that before. Oh man, I've thought an unhealthy amount about that. <laughs> Uh, so I have a lot of thoughts on this. I'll try to make them concise. So basically you're, you're asking if I think that preferential hypertrophy of slow twitch or fast twitch fibers is a thing. And if we can manipulate our training to bias the growth to type one or type two fibers, is that kind of what you're getting at? So that, and then if there was uh, an ability to do that, would that relate at all to your thoughts on kind of sarcoplasmic hypertrophy? being similar to slower twitch fibers and then kind of myofibrillar being more similar to kind of the fast twitch fibers? Yeah, that's a good question, man. I mean, the experiment that would be required to answer that question uh, in humans would require a biopsy sample and then we would have to tease apart the single fibers. So Dr. Andy Galpin actually does this technique. He would be great to have on your podcast. I don't know if you've had him on before. but We need him again. <laughs> Okay. Yeah. I mean, he's doing amazing work and uh, he uses the single fiber technique uh, where he'll collect the biopsy and then tease apart the single fibers. And then, so you can study the single fibers and how they respond to a, a training intervention. Um, so we would need to do that and then look at um, pure type one fibers and pure type two A or type two X fibers. Type two X fibers are really rare, pure two X fibers, but Imagine we had type one fiber here and then a type two A fiber here, a pure fiber, because a lot of them are hybrid, it seems, uh, or at least some of them. We would need to do that at baseline and then have a certain training program with light loads and higher volumes and then heavy loads with relatively lower volumes and then see if there was uh, a fiber type specific response. Um, unfortunately, that data isn't available, but I can say that a recent study from um, the first author's last name was Edmund et al. I think Sebastian Edmund. Um, and they showed that type two fibers seem to contain higher levels of um, proteins that are involved in the mTOR pathway. Uh, I think ribosomal protein S6 um, and uh, I think P70S6K. Anyways, those two proteins are involved in the initiation of the translation of messenger RNA that code for proteins. Um, and so if top two fibers have, 
I think they showed around 50% more of these proteins than type one fibers, then that might explain why um, type two fibers seem to respond more favorably to resistance training, just based on like a relative change from pre to post. Um, with that said, to your question, the protein, well, there are a lot of differences between fiber types beyond the myosin heavy chain protein expression. That's the, the primary way that muscle fibers are fiber typed. So myosin heavy chain one uh, is slow twitch and myosin heavy chain 2A and 2X are considered to be fast twitch. And that's related to how quickly they hydrolyze ATP and can form cross bridges with actin. Um, so some other differences between fiber types. Well, type one fibers, pure type one fibers tend to contain more mitochondria and more myoglobin. Um, and so there's a difference right there. If you train those fibers and we assume that their compositional nature will remain the same, if they grow, it's possible that more of the growth in the type one fibers is due to increased levels of mitochondria and myoglobin. Now that's just speculation. Um, but the type two A fibers and two X fibers tend to contain lower levels of mitochondria and myoglobin. Um, and so if their relative composition is maintained as they grow, then we might see, um, you know, myofibrillar hypertrophy is biased to the type two fibers, whereas sarcoplasmic hypertrophy is biased to the type one fibers. It's a possibility. It's an insightful question, but not a simple one to answer. No. <laughs> um, so, yeah. So then in terms of, obviously, we talked a little bit about um, like having the higher volume phases and kind of there's been kind of looking into some research, there's kind of been like resensitization potentially from like the lower volume kind of strength sort of phases, um, potentially like you talked about the kind of detraining as well that you kind of looked into. And uh, we talked off air about how this is kind of an interesting area for you. And I wonder if you have any kind of practical recommendations or anything you like to do, or you've seen to be beneficial from kind of from a practical perspective on kind of cycling volume. Yeah. Yeah. It's super interesting, man. And like I told you, um, we just finished up in advanced sport physiology, a lecture on the effects of detraining on the decay rates of certain adaptations. Uh, so a lot of this is fresh on my mind. So I love the question and hopefully this is interesting to, to listeners and feel free to stop me. But the idea uh, is that we could cycle volume. Uh, so high volume periods of training and low volume periods of training to maximize muscle growth over broad time um, versus an approach that consistently uh, maintained higher volumes all of the time. And so just to kind of back up for a second, in the industry right now, I'm sure you can appreciate, you ask someone that is abreast to the evidence-based community and the discussions that occur, like what's the primary driver of muscle hypertrophy? Almost always you'll hear the word volume. Um, but I think for thinking about this question and answering it uh, objectively, it's important to unpack what that means and why volume is considered to be a primary factor to maximize growth over time. Um, if we think of volume as the number of uh, hard or forceful contractions of a muscle fiber uh, during a week of training, the data suggests that indeed up to a point that's not yet clear and it's likely different between people what well, is different between people and it's different between various age categories and uh, there are layers, but just on average, there is some proximal value of a number of forceful contractions in a week that probably results in the maximal growth response from those contractions. Uh, so if we sort of zoom into what volume really means, we're really thinking or we're talking about the number of times that a muscle lengthens and shortens uh, and how many times that occurs with a certain load, right? Um, and there are passive forces that are sensed. And then the, of course the active forces that occur when you actually contract the tissue. But anyways, if we think of a certain number of contractions eliciting the maximal growth response in a given session, 
and then in a given week, there's some point that is too much, right? That will not further encourage growth. So uh, really cool just to blend in some, some data here. Uh, Oga Sawara, and we'll talk about some of his uh, other work, uh, their group uh, on detraining and cycling volume. But they did a pretty cool rodent study. I posted this on my Instagram, I think, last week. Um, or probably, I think it was earlier this week. Anyways, they looked at the muscle protein synthesis response in rodent muscle. So they electrically stimulated the muscle and basically mimicked sets of 10. Uh, and they looked at, uh, I think it was three sets, five sets, 10 sets, and up to like 20 sets. Um, and found basically at around five or 10 sets of 10, when you just stimulate the muscle to maximally contract in a given session, so it sort of mimicked a training session, they didn't find further increases in muscle protein synthesis. Um, and since we know that the, does that make sense? Yeah. So it's kind of like a bell shaped curve that you were yeah, so going to draw from like three sets or around, uh, yeah, around three sets to five sets, you see a, an increase in muscle protein synthesis. And then when you go from five sets to 10 sets, you see a little uptick, but there's no additional muscle protein synthesis beyond around 10 sets, at least in this rodent okay. model. Um, and I think it's interesting. I haven't read his work in detail, but I, I saw some infographics or something from uh, James Krieger showing that he uh, mined a lot of training uh, study research and found that somewhere around 10 to 12 sets per muscle in a given session is probably maximizing the growth response yeah. and it's interesting that that was the around the value that Ogasawara found in a rodent model uh, but with that said we know that muscle protein synthesis this curve this fractional synthesis rate uh, is elevated above baseline in trained muscle for around 24 hours or so and then in untrained muscle or muscle that's less uh, accustomed to a certain uh, style of training it probably lasts a little longer Okay, so we take that information and we put that together. Well, we arrive at maybe somewhere around 30 or so sets a week, uh, 30 sets of these hard contractions, around 10 reps or so per contraction or per set, that's probably a, a maximal effective dose. All right, cool. So let's assume that that's sort of the model that people are using and we want to maximize muscle growth over time, right? So um, if someone is using that number of sets or starting at a lower volume and then climbing up to that number over the course of several weeks and then cycling through that model, but consistently training with 10 to 30 sets or so per week, can the muscle get uh, desensitized to that stimulus is sort of the question. And does that mean that we should cycle that volume? based on local effects at the muscle level, where we can talk about systemic effects and other factors that constrain adaptation. But if we just think about muscle um, and what's going on in the cell, Ogasawara also has data showing that, and they used a similar model, I think it was um, five sets of five is what they were mimicking. Uh, and they looked at the effects on um, anabolic signaling. So some proteins that are involved in increasing muscle protein synthesis eventually, P70S6K, and its phosphorylation status. So briefly, if, if that protein is phosphorylated, the general thought is that um, it will play a role in increasing the muscle protein synthesis response to training. And so they found that after like 18 bouts, um, imagine a bar here, a bar here, and then another bar here, you just see less and less of this phosphorylation response to uh, more training, to the same style of training. Uh, so basically it seemed that that signaling pathway desensitized um, after like 18 bouts of training. But then they had um, some of the rodents detrain for like 12 days and do one bout of exercise. So these rats did 12 bouts of this extra, they were stimulated for 12 bouts and then they took 12 days off and then they stimulated them again for five sets of five and then looked at the phosphorylation status of this protein. That seems important for anabolism and found that it basically restored 
the phosphorylation response. So that, that 12 day detraining period seemed to actually resensitize that signaling pathway. And so that's intriguing, right? That's a short term study in, in rats, but a lot of the physiology is, is the same in, in humans. And so then you're like, okay, well, that's interesting. But then when you go back to around 1980, uh, Robert Sterren did a study where he had uh, women trained for 20 weeks and then they detrained for like 32 weeks. I think it was 30 weeks. So it was a 50 week study, really well done study. Um, and so from week zero to week 20, you see this characteristic hypertrophy response, all the fibers, type one, two, a and two X five, well, type one and type two fibers increased in size as what we would expect in response to a 20 week training study. But then they detrained and he found that after um, about 30 weeks of detraining muscle fiber size decreased, but it didn't return back to baseline. It was still actually a little higher after 30 weeks of detraining. And then he uh, retrained them for six weeks. And they actually, the fibers actually grew to be larger than they were after the initial zero to 20 weeks. So after that six week training intervention, after the 30 week layoff, the fibers ended up being larger than they were after the first 20 weeks. And that's really interesting, mm. right? Um, now, Steve, you're not going to take 30 weeks off of training, right? Um, but the indication from that study is there does seem to be a, a resensitization effect of not training. That doesn't mean that that's what we should do to maximize hypertrophy over time. That's just, you know, an example. But then you look uh, again at Oga Sawara's work, and then there's a really cool study from Dr. Marcus Bauman's lab that I'll, I'll mention too. Um, but Oga Sawara et al. in like 2011 and 2013 uh, they did some work in humans and uh, the general design of the study was you had a group that trained continuously for around 20 weeks and then a group that trained for about six weeks, took three weeks off, trained again for six weeks and then took three weeks off. And what they found, and then eventually um, the group that trained and then detrained, you see some, uh, regression of muscle fiber size uh, during the three-week training period. So their muscles did decrease in size, but then when they returned to training, the slope of that line versus the continuous group was a lot more positive. Right. So they were able to return to sort of the trend of the other group. And then at the end of the study, um, the group that trained for six weeks, took three weeks off and trained again, uh, they ended up gaining just as much muscle and strength as the group that didn't. And that just continuously trained, not more, but the same. And that speaks to, you know, the, there's a resensitization effect maybe, but the decay rate of muscle size and strength is relatively slow compared to something like VO2 max. Um, and mitochondrial volume with the training seems to drop off pretty substantially. Uh, but the decay rate of muscle size and strength with detraining um, is relatively slower. It does still happen on the order of a couple of weeks. That's detraining. So I think our next question is, well, is there any way to use lower volume periods to get that resensitization effect without losing muscle size and strength, right? That's the, the natural question. Um, and so this study from Marcus Bauman's lab uh, was the first author's last name was Bickle. Uh, and it was in 2011 and really cool study uh, started with around 70 subjects and they trained for 16 uh, weeks. And then after that initial 16 week period, so muscle fiber size increased across the board. Um, he partitioned the subjects into one of three groups, a detraining group, a group that trained with one third of the volume, and then a group that trained with one ninth of the volume. And what they found is with detraining, after 16 weeks of detraining, muscle fiber size basically decreased back to baseline. With a ninth of the volume, it decreased some, but was still actually higher than baseline. 
But what was really intriguing about that study is one third of the volume effectively seemed to maintain muscle fiber size in, in the young subjects that were in the study. Uh, so one third of the volume for 16 weeks maintained muscle fiber size uh, from that initial 16 week training period. And then you look at the uh, muscle fiber type data. And I thought this was intriguing. The one ninth volume group uh, you see, so basically type 2A fibers increased the, the percentage of all of the muscle fibers in the biopsy sample that were type 2A increased in each of the groups. But with detraining, it regressed back to around baseline. With one-ninth of the volume, it decreased, but not entirely back to baseline. But then with one-third of the volume, the percentage of those type 2A fibers was maintained. So there wasn't a, a fiber type shift. Uh, with just one third of the volume. And this, so I can stop there for a second. I know that was a lot of information at once, but there's a lot to take from that, right? Mm. That there probably is a desensitization effect if we consider that Ogasawara study in, in rodents. And we can restore some of that anabolic signaling sensitivity with some lower volume periods. Well, instead of detraining and losing muscle size, if we just train with lower volume for a, an amount of time, we could probably restore our sensitivity uh, and not lose any muscle fiber size during the time that we're actually detraining. And the strength data from that Bickel study, detraining at, in the young subjects didn't even uh, result in a decrease in strength or a significant decrease in strength for up to like 16 or 30 weeks after they stopped training. So strength really hangs in there once it's there, it seems in there for a period of probably months um, and muscle fiber size muscle hypertrophy I'll just call it fiber size as a construct but it decreases a little more quickly than strength but it still decays relatively more slowly than other adaptations like rate of force development and power output and mm. um, certain conditioning adaptations no i think that's really interesting and to the point of which for anyone listening it's kind of like well you could almost train less than someone else and get just as good progress. And what we're trying to find out, and I guess you're kind of alluding to is like, well, I think you could maybe train less and get more progress um, if you're smart about how you're cycling between these kind of lower volume periods and then higher volume. And it's certainly something I've been using with my own training as an influence from Mike Isratel, as he talks about kind of these maintenance volume phases and we've kind of termed it with our clients primer phases to kind of prime you to resensitize you for kind of coming out of it because it sounded a bit more sexy compared to a maintenance volume phase or something along those lines yeah. but yeah. i've certainly experienced it myself where just over time you just in the gym nothing kind of feels like it's progressing like it should maybe something like pumps and kind of the fatigue and you kind of feel fatigued but not kind of like in a muscular soreness kind of way it's just kind of like a general lethargy lethargy um and nothing's kind of moving how you want it to and i guess i don't know something along the lines of like adaptive resistance desensitization kind of building up it definitely it makes sense in time term of like a biological adaptation that might occur so it's really interesting that it's coming out in research and is it something that you i know you're a coach as well uh is it something you use with your clients to kind of cycle volumes and what might that look like practically? Is that something like a month or a mesocycle of lower volume? Or, um, and have you ever played with, and this might be another question, like active uh, recovery phases? So could you shorten the length and even have just like a deload back-to-back -back two weeks or something rather than kind of going through a whole lower volume strength phase? Yeah, good question. So yes, I do use for clients that are training to maximize muscle growth over time. Um, after around three months or so, it just depends. And it depends on how long we actually accumulate. So like, I don't use, everyone's going to train with a four week mesocycle and then we're going to deload every time I, I make it a little bit more dynamic and I use mo weekly monitoring of various data and decide based on what I'm seeing, um, if they should deload or not. Uh, but regular deloads are certainly a thing. Um, and we can talk about like the, the physiology involved in, in that because it's not necessarily to desensit or to resensitize the muscle exclusively. It's for other factors um, to allow for the dissipation of fatigue, for example. 
Um, but that's a vague concept. Like physiologically, there are things that require around a week probably to um, occur that situate someone to be able to overload effectively in a subsequent mesocycle. So with that said, regular deloads are a thing on average, probably every five to six weeks. And then after around three months, the reason why, uh, well, a lot of my training and the people who have uh, taught me about program design and periodization dating back to my time at ETSU, that was sort of uh, uh, the idea of a mesocycle and phase duration. Um, a lot of the old periodization literature is based on uh, sports, right, and, and quadrennials and annual plans and stuff like that. So the phase durations relate to that a little bit, but, and so it, it might be flawed reasoning to say three months, but for me, um, every few months or so, it's primarily uh, a thing that I do because people get tired of training a certain way. That's like one of the main reasons. They just kind of get tired of doing the same style of training um, after three or four months and burn out with sets of six to 12 and on average and training for muscle growth and, and doing the things that are involved with maximizing the muscle growth response to training. So it's mostly, I would say preference, but then, uh, yes, I think that there's some physiology to support the fact that, and then just looking at rate of change and looking at their progress photos after a few months of training a certain way, um, with some assumptions, I think that people do become slightly desensitized to eating in a surplus and training with higher volumes. And there are a lot of factors to consider, but yes, every few months or so, I like to do what I call a strength phase. Um, so it's lower volume, it's relatively higher intensity. Uh, it's novel, uh, people tend to like it after training with relatively lighter loads for such a long period of time. And um, yeah, that's, that's sort of the general model that I use. Every few months we'll do uh, mostly sets of five or lower, not going above around three to four sets per movement with about four or five movements in a session uh, for uh, at least four weeks, but sometimes even more, a couple months. Uh, and then when they're ready to begin training for hypertrophy specifically again, then we'll, we'll kick it back off. Sounds very familiar um, because we use something very similar. And I think something I really enjoyed about that approach, not only does it make kind of, it's making more sense as more data comes out and it kind of, when you speak it through, it makes sense from like a kind of methodical programming periodization perspective, but also often it aligns with the nutrition. So you talked about kind of how after three months of massing or trying to grow muscle, you also kind of get a desensitization maybe to the the surplus in that potentially you're a bit fatter now, so you're not responding as well to that calorie surplus. And same with dieting, if you're pushing volume whilst you're dieting because you're trying to maintain the muscle after maybe three months or so, kind of a good time to maybe come back to maintenance and like you said, go through that strength phase because maybe you've lost like a lot of your body weight and so diet fatigue has got very high. So you're seeing kind of those negative adaptations in both phases. So I like that kind of congruence between the training and nutrition side and um, it as a coach, it's certainly nice to give that to clients and have a, a decent explanation behind the rationale there. Yeah, and I mean, I've heard people argue that alternating phase focus more frequently is probably better. So like a hypertrophy mesocycle, maybe a month of training dedicated to higher volumes and then the next month bringing in higher intensities and lower volumes and then just alternating back and forth. I don't think that that's the best way because you, in my opinion, over broad time, you miss out on all of the possible growth that could occur in for several weeks. You know, I mean, you look at some of the training studies, even in, in trained individuals, you can grow a measurable amount of muscle for up to 12 to 16 weeks. Um, and there doesn't seem to be a lot of desensitization, like an, an astronomical amount um, in that time frame. So in other words, if we take 16 weeks of time and we're curious about how we can maximize the muscle growth in that unit of time, I don't think that it's high volume, low volume, high volume, low volume. I think it's consistently pretty high volume um, and but then eventually bringing in lower volume phases to, to resensitize and to allow some connective tissue repair maybe and um, reduction in 
uh, well, actually repletion of substrate and several other factors, psychological factors, right? Break up some of the monotony of training. You know, we tend to see uh, injuries occur in uh, sports when monotony is, is relatively high and volume is relatively high. So when athletes report or their training involves doing much of the same thing and for an extended period of time on the order of weeks, and we increase the volume notably, so if we combine that monotony with an increase in volume, you'll, you typically see higher rates of injury in that scenario. So, yeah, I mean, I think there are a lot of reasons why that, that makes sense. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think it, it's over and above the, I mean, everything's intertwined, the physiology, the psychology, and um, yeah. I, I, I think it's it's really interesting to see that it's coming more and more into research. And I think it's even something, uh, I know James Krieger even has done these cyclical volume phases as well. And even kind of the past bodybuilders would kind of do these periods of time where they'd kind of take time off and kind of come back to the gym and you'd see that they'd be bigger than ever. So it's really cool that it's all kind of coming together in that regard. And I completely agree that from previous experience myself, I'd kind of go into maybe an off season phase and just be like, okay, I'm going to be in a small surplus and train like this. And I just try and keep pushing this, but it it's quite often easy to spin your wheels when you don't have kind of a dedicated time that you know, you're going to do it. You just kind of, you don't push as hard. You're not kind of as motivated as you could be. Well, yeah, man. And then like a classic effect that, that we see with training is called the repeated bout effect. That's something that we haven't even talked about yet. And um, there are, we, we just discussed this well, so it's uh, as well. So it's fresh from my mind. The three theories that uh, are thought to explain this repeated bout effect, which is basically you do a bout of training. And then if you repeat it after around a week, you're less sore. Um, and what happens? Well, there's a connective tissue theory and neural theory and then a cellular theory. And the idea is that with the uh, neural theory, for example, the first time that you do this novel bout, you recruit more of the type two fibers because the demand of the task, it's relatively more difficult. Uh, the forces and uh, well, just the forces and such you're unaccustomed to. So you recruit most of the, the larger fibers. Um, and then in the second time that you repeat that bout, the idea is that you can accomplish the force demands of that task by spreading out the recruitment requirements uh, to the uh, perhaps the more of the slower twitch fibers or less of the, the larger type two fibers that tend to take on a little bit more damage. So in other words, the stress is distributed over a larger number of fibers, not just really um, in those type two fibers. So there's modulations in the recruitment patterns and then connective tissue uh, can become more resilient to injury. Um, and so from a bout of training, you can increase the connective tissue integrity. And then the cellular theory is that you perhaps increase the number of uh, proteins that are involved with uh, transducing force and effectively protecting the muscle cell. So if those are happening over time, and you know, and you're, you're getting this repeated bout effect, you know, if we assume we're adding a little bit of volume each time, we're getting this repeated bout effect to a certain extent. And so training that was once overloading is no longer really overloading, right? So you've literally desensitized to that style of training and, and the forces that are experienced in it due to those adaptations. Um, and so it probably makes sense to, to back off for those reasons as well to effectively try and resensitize the muscle. Um, but anyways, man, yeah, that, that was a little bit of an aside. Um, no, it's very interesting. I think it's it's something that for initially, at least for me, it was a hard sell. And I think it can be a hard sell to a bodybuilder who just does continuously like pushing. And they, they almost feel like they can override their i know i i often do think i can kind of override my physiological uh, psychological kind of wants and i don't get burnt out i just want to keep gaining muscle and um when you explain it to uh, you may have had it with clients but when you explain it to them kind of the purpose of it is to maximize hypertrophy we're not kind of pulling back because just for the hell of it um it does help with that whole journey have you ever found it's a hard sell to anyone to kind of go through it or have you found kind of calling it a strength phase has been really a powerful way of kind of helping people kind of buy into it 
Yeah, I mean, definitely, man, like highly motivated clients and, and even myself, like I, I don't, well, originally like encountering some of this and even the, the concept of deloading, right? Taking weeks of, of training less, um, eh, you know, you're kind of like resistant to it. Um, tomorrow could be my last day on earth, brother. I want to push it. You know? um, but like if the net effect of deloading and these lower volume phases is going to result in more progress over broad time, uh, that's usually what I try to say and, and try to explain. But then to your point, like, what do we call that? How do we present that? If you present it and frame it as you're going to train less for the next several weeks, that's probably not the best way to say that. Um, for motivational purposes, it's probably better like you've called it like a primer phase or I, I like the strength phase gives them the idea that I can still make progress in this fitness characteristic while simultaneously like I'll get more hypertrophy eventually from this resensitization period. Yeah. So maybe that wasn't the best way to word that, but it's kind of killing two birds with one stone. You, you probably resensitize re some of those pathways and you can potentially improve your strength. So there's measurable progress on the order of weeks that people can see and keep them motivated while simultaneously resensitizing to uh, hypertrophy style training. I think if you frame it that way, that's worked pretty well for me so far. Um, so yeah. And actually, on an additional question, on a, as an aside, obviously you called it a strength phase, and you're focusing on more so closer to like five repetitions. Is there a kind of is the rationale there that kind of those higher intensities you can get away with even lower volume and maintain muscle, as the research has shown, or do you ever use kind of a higher repetitions whilst you're doing kind of the lower volume phases? Yeah, that's a good question. I think that that training needs to be distinct. I think that it does need to be unique uh, for psychological reasons as well. So if it's too similar to the training that they were doing before that phase, I don't think that it's fully accomplishing what we want. Um, so I think it's important to really try and break up the monotony uh, if you are going to do some kind of phase like that. Uh, but yeah, I mean, from that Bickle study, for example, around a third of the volume uh, if you're doing sets of 10 to 12 reps, uh, if we go to three to five and you do roughly the same number of sets, assuming that load isn't super heavy, um, that's roughly a third of the volume. Uh, and, and that seems to be uh, an amount that effectively maintains muscle size and strength, uh, at least in younger individuals. Um, so there's nothing magic about five <laughs> and doing sets of three, right? Like the main thing for me is just to reduce the number of reps per set to a, uh, an unambiguous amount uh, that's different than 10 um, or more. And then um, I just don't think that doing sets of six to 12 during that lower volume period will accomplish what we really want. I don't, Yeah. I mean, you could, so in that Bickle study just quickly, uh, the way that they actually decreased the volume was by in the uh, one third of the volume group, they were training three days a week for the first 16 weeks. And then they just went to one day per week. So they did the same number of sets per exercise. I think it was around nine sets per uh, muscle for the legs. So it was like a leg press, leg extension, and then a hack squat, I think. Um, so they were doing nine sets three times a week for the quads basically. Uh, and when they went to the third, so 27 total sets, for example. Uh, and then when they went, the third volume was just nine, but they did it all in one day. So they just trained once a week. And then for the one ninth of the volume group, they just did one set for one day instead of three sets for one day. So they took all of those two groups of subjects down to one day of training per week but they just reduced the number of sets um, for the ninth volume group. Anyways, they kept the reps of the same is what okay. I'm getting at. And they were doing like eight to 12 reps. Um, so maybe that's a case for keeping uh, rep per set values a little higher. But again, I, I think that it's important to make sure that it's distinct. And as long as the volume is around 
uh, one third of the volume of the previous weeks, most recent weeks. You probably don't have to worry about any loss of muscle or strength and you probably get that resensitization effect. Cool. Yeah, I wonder if there's any resensitization by not going those, like you, the, the higher repetitions now become a little bit more novel and kind of you may get some additional adaptations there or something. But um, it's certainly, again, it's nice to have it as a distinct phase that's different. So I, I completely see that. Um, we come to about an hour. So I think it's probably a good time to call it. And uh, I think we can probably say we'll definitely get you back on, Cody, if you'd be welcome, if you do us that honor. And uh, I want to say a massive thank you to you and for taking the time for this discussion. I think the audience is going to love it. Um, and if people want to find out more about you, if they want to find out kind of, yeah, where you're putting out your information, I know you've already mentioned your Instagram. Yeah. So I have a Twitter and Instagram that's uh, at dr cody Hahn, so dr cody Hahn. um i have a website so i put up some of my peer-reviewed papers and some of the lay articles that i write i'm gonna over christmas break when i have more time because we just finished the semester and been doing research and teaching um so i'm gonna have more time to to beef that up and put out more free content uh, on my website um, for people to uh, consume hopefully and hopefully that's helpful uh, and I have a, a weekly newsletter that I'm doing now where I'm trying to answer a question a week um, and share my thoughts on a study that I found interesting each week. So it's free. You just sign up on a Google form and then I add your email and I send one email a week on average and it's short and sweet. And it's just, Hey, I thought this was interesting. This is what the authors found. Um, and if I am on a podcast or something, or if I answer a question, I'll put the video in the, the email. Um, so I'm doing that and that you can sign up at my website. Um, and then, so I'm a professor, I think you mentioned that at the beginning, uh, but I'm a professor and, and doing some research at uh, LaGrange College and we have uh, an undergraduate and a graduate degree. Um, if anyone's interested in uh, coming and studying with me, that's where I'm at right now. And then I'm working with a company uh, called AppLift as a research and development officer. And as we were talking about a little bit off air with Google Sheets, I've worked uh, so with Greg Knuckles uh, through Stronger by Science for about five years now as an online coach. And even dating back to my personal trainer days, I was developing programs and spreadsheets. And I got to the point, to, like you were talking about, like you have all of these advanced connected codes and you think that it's really cool and then you like, you uh, enter an incorrect or a client enters data in the wrong place or something that throws everything off. Uh, I have so many stories of that happening, but I've used like, I've reinvented spreadsheets that I've used for programming like five, six times. I mean, totally revamping them. And I've just found that it's not a sustainable approach. Um, and I got really interested in, in coding and some statistical analysis during my PhD. And, and I uh, was contacted by the, the guys from AppLift. And uh, the idea is to build software that coaches can use to deliver programming to their clients uh, remotely and monitor that data uh, objectively, but automate it for coaches and also centralize things for online coaching. So, I mean, at one point in time, I was using Messenger, WhatsApp, you know, text messages, phone calls, Zoom, Skype, Google Hangouts, Google Drive, Excel, all these different things. And so the idea is to centralize it where you can chat, process payments, see all of your billing information, see the client's data and easily program for people um, and see the information that you want right there in the, the, the same portal. And they can share photos and videos all in one place. And then on their end, they have an app um, that they have the program delivered to them and it's very uh, simple and, and easy to use. And so the user interface, they see their program, they enter the data, so reps and load and reps and reserve. And then they can see their progress plotted over time for different movements just right there on the app. There are algorithms in the app and we have all these different features planned to continue to improve the programming portal and the app itself. But one uh, really new feature or really cool new feature that I like that we worked a good bit on is uh, an algorithm that helps you decide what load to use based on what's programmed. So if you have 
uh, set of eight programmed for squats at an RIR three. Of course, you can estimate that if you're regularly tracking or you can reference your training log on paper or perhaps pull up Google Sheets app on a phone. Uh, but the app actually can calculate it for you based upon the loads that you've lifted recently. Very cool. Um, and so you don't have to worry about that. It's just right there. And you can flash over to another tab and see loads over time and see your historical entries. So if you want to look back a couple months and see like, what did I do last overloading or overreaching micro for squats? You can see that uh, data. So yeah, man, I mean, that's, uh, we're wanting to, continue to improve it and um, make the process of delivering online coaching easier um, and, and more automated and better for coaches and for clients. So. Very cool. I'll definitely be uh, interested in checking that out. And uh, definitely also I need to sign up to your weekly newsletter because that sounds good as well. I always like quick, easy bits of good information. So I'll make sure that's all linked below so people can get a hold of that. And again, I want to say a massive thank you to you, Cody, for coming on. And uh, thank you all for listening. Yeah, Steve, thank you so much, man. I look forward to our next chat.